Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. We've had a very interesting overview by Mark Horton of the book of Hebrews, and we'll be starting in chapter 1. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. William, would you please open this with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for this time that we have to spend together to discuss another portion of your word. We thank you for your son who died for us and who gave us an opportunity to have a right to the tree of life. We thank you for the kingdom which has been established for us and that we are citizens thereof, and we just pray that our lives reflect the character that would manifest your word in us. We pray for those around the world who are suffering, who are uh, without food, clothing, and shelter, as well as those who are within our own country. We pray for the leaders of our country, for wisdom, and for righteous direction. And we pray, Father, for those who have needs of which we are unaware, but that we know you care. We ask your blessings upon the teacher tonight and upon all of those of us who will listen and participate in this call, and we ask that all things that are done are decent and in order. Keep us in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. Good evening, Mark. Hi, Tom. It's good to be back with you in our studio audience, I guess. It's a it's an expanded studio. We have several on the line with us from around the country. We talked a little bit about the background of the letter to the Hebrews, how it could have been written by Paul, but in all likelihood was written by one of his understudies, someone who had long exposure to the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, which serves as the overwhelming basis, foundation, and reference for this letter. And this letter is written to Judeans, and they are being sorely tempted to put aside this Jesus of Nazareth because they don't really need him to be a good Judean, and there's a mounting price that has to be paid for uh, naming his name uh, in the synagogue communities, apparently, at this time. And so this is kind of the context and setting that we talked about last time. I'm going to read a paraphrase by F.F. Bruce of the uh, first few verses here before we actually start going through verse by verse. But he calls this summation the argument of the letter to the Hebrews. 
And it goes as follows. God spoke in various ways to our fathers through the prophets, but now he has spoken his final word to us in his son, his perfect representative. The son of God is his agent not only in creation and revelation, but also and preeminently in the salvation of the human race. He is greater than any prophet. He is greater even than the angels, as the ancient scriptures abundantly testify. It was through angels that Moses' law was communicated, and its sanctions were severe enough. But much more perilous must it be to ignore the saving message brought by no angel, but by Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, is the one to whom the dominion of the world has been committed for all time to come. As the 8th Psalm teaches us, God has put everything under the dominion of human beings, and it was the nature of humans, our nature, that the Son of God took upon himself in order to win back this dominion. To do this, he had to conquer the devil who had usurped it and rescue those whom he held in bondage. And he conquered the devil when in death he invaded the realm of death, which the devil had controlled until then. It is because Jesus is truly man, moreover, that he is qualified to serve as high priest on his people's behalf. He knows all their trials from his own experiences and therefore can give them the timely help that they need. That's a paraphrase of the first two chapters. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 4 in chapter 1, please. Verse 1, chapter 1 of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Great, thank you. So the author is now establishing more or less the finality of revelation through the Son of God here in this opening blast, shall we say. And again, this is written to a synagogue community or communities who revere the words of the prophets uh, very highly. And there's a contrast here that now there's a revelation that's a little different than the revelation that had been given earlier through the prophets. An acknowledgement that the last days have come about, which we've spent a lot of time discussing in the book of Acts recently, how the days of Christ and the apostles really fit the idea of last days uh, much better than some thousands of years that only began, perhaps, at Christ's birth or with the preaching of John. But we see that every scripture relating to the last days is being wrapped up and fulfilled in the days of Christ and the apostles. And the author of Hebrews is going to confirm this multiple times in in the course of this letter. The action of Christ in creation is repeated here. Of course, this is a big part of the prologue to the Gospel of John, and there's a lot of other passages that allude to this as well. We see right below here that the Son is the effulgence of God's glory and the very image of his being. This, again, is calling to mind the prologue of John and other passages in the Gospel of John. Any aspect of God, any part of God that can be comprehended by the physical senses 
That is Jesus Christ. And the Gospel of John, you know, demonstrates that, which we've looked at that before, and we have uh, tapes of all that as well. But you cannot see the Father unless you see the Son. Uh, seeing, hearing, touching, feeling. The apostles and the disciples in the first century were able to do this in Christ's physical body. We, by faith, apprehend Christ spiritually, and that is our only path to the Father. He is the very image of God's being. Just like we use the logo for IBM or Sonic Drive-In to identify that entity, we use Jesus Christ to identify God. And it's even more important to realize that now we are the spiritual body of Christ and we are the glory of Christ as his bride, and we are joined to Christ as one, and we are then the glory of God as well. Someone said in the earlier broadcast that God loves Israel, and this is a a very passionate message of the Bible, and he certainly does. I mean, that's really the story of the Bible, is God's perfect love for Israel. And, of course, we saw as we went through the book of Acts that we've all been, those of us who are not physical descendants of Jacob, have been grafted into Israel, and we are now supposed to be his image. And so we've seen all this language before, but it's it's a lot of powerful concepts here, all packed into the opening paragraph here in Hebrews Not only has the Son created all things, but he keep things going in verse 3. His word keeps things going. And as a technical person, I'm reminded of the second law of thermodynamics. It says any system is running down unless somebody is applying energy and, and controlled energy to keep that system ticking right along. And, of course, the Son of God is that energy for the physical universe, which is really just a means to bring about and sustain his eternal purpose, his His spiritual kingdom, his perfect dwelling place here on earth. The idea at the end of verse 3 that he made purification for our sins and then sat down, this stands in quite contrast to the Levitical priesthood who never got to sit down because their job of offering sacrifices for Israel never ended. It had to keep going day after day after day or or forever (laughs) in, in the sense we were talking in the last broadcast. They had to offer these things forever for Israel to allow the possibility of God's presence remaining in their midst. In contrast to this, and setting the tone for a large part of this letter, we see that Christ made purification for sins and then sat down because his redemptive work was complete in one fell swoop. So we already see a little preview that he is superior to the priesthood of old uh, Israel. And he has sat down at the right hand of God on high. He has become superior to 
the angels, and he has a name which he has inherited, which is superior to the angels. So I, I'm told there are seven life forms in the Bible. I don't have them all memorized, but God's life, Zoe life, which is uncreated life from eternity past, is the highest form of life. And then we have angelic life here, obviously a little bit lower. And then we have human life uh, below that. We'll, we'll see a little bit more about that here down a little further. There are seven facts stated here to establish the greatness of Jesus as the Son of God. We'll see sevens repeated uh, in this letter, seven being the number of the perfection of God's Spirit, and probably many other things besides that. I know it's at least that. We also saw in verse 2 the concept of Christ as heir of all things. That's the one who receives the inheritance. And this is linked later in the letter to the inheritance promised to Abraham, which comes up often in our discussions. And, of course, as the bride of Christ, we are joint heirs in this complete and total inheritance. And the writer here is going to tell us that Abraham could see far beyond physical real estate to the spiritual fulfillment of the promises made to him in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And let's see, that's pretty much all I had on these four verses. We will see that the comparative adjective better occurs 13 times in this letter to contrast Christ and his new creation with all that had gone before him. And uh, we've we've talked about this before. I, I just don't know how our dispensational friends can keep this letter in their Bibles because it's based on typology, which is anathema to the dispensational Zionist uh, worldview and, and Bible view in all things. All right, any other thoughts or comments here on these first four verses? Yeah, Mark, I'd like to go back to uh, verse 2 when it talks about but in these last days, does that mean anything different than in these current days? Or is there a sense of finality in that phrase and how it's translated as these last days as opposed to just at this present time? Well, as we've seen uh, in the quotes throughout the book of Acts, when they talk about the last days, they're talking about all of the things spoken by the prophets, all of the things spoken by Moses are being fulfilled in these last days. Uh, Christ, even at the end of Luke, uh, talked about that as well. So I do believe that it is these current times when the writer was writing, but that it also is, more importantly, the last days of physical Israel. The Old Covenant, we're going to see, is waxing old. It's, it's like a candle that's burned down to just a stub and can only last a little while longer before it is snuffed out, before it goes out because there's nothing left of it. To me, that's the tone that's going to be set here uh, in this letter. William might have a much more commanding way of, of explaining that, but that's how I would explain it. Pretty vivid uh, explanation, I'd say. Yeah, I think you did well. Burn down candle. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm apologizing to all my dispensational friends who are probably not listening to this. <laughs> well, we hope some are. 
Yeah. Uh, and uh, for their benefit, when you talk about God's love for Israel, of course, if dispensational friends were listening, of course, they would say, hallelujah, he's right on. God really does love the political state of Israel. He loves it more than any other political state. And, of course, I think your meaning there, of course, is that God loves the people who followed him through the era of, of the old prophets. And I think you've just kind of said that the, the candle of Israel was burning a little at this time. Well, and again, I, I sent that little okay. picture which Tom has posted. Israel is a continuity, and this is so important. There wasn't a day when Israel ended and ceased to exist in God's mind. But in the days of Acts, in these last days of the prophets, Israel was being transformed from a corrupt, adulterous, harlot bride into a perfect spiritual bride by the blood of Christ, by his once-for-all atonement. And so that was a, it was a continuity, and there was a, exodus, a new exodus going on throughout the narrative of the book of Acts, calling the righteous remnant out of old Israel, which is that candle about to go out forever, into a new light, a light of the world that could never be snuffed out. So to me, I, I have to think in pictures, and that timeline that I sketched out uh, helps me to, to keep that in mind. Israel is a continuity today. We are the spiritual heirs of the righteous remnant of old covenant Israel. But he, I mean, God loved them, but they never loved him in return. Only a righteous remnant ever loved him in return throughout all the history of the physical nation. They treated him with contempt. They spat in his face over and over again, and that's the history that we have in the Old Testament. Mark, I like how you explained that because so many times we're accused, at least I'm being accused, of being a replacement theology. And the way you explain it, it's not a replacement, it's a, con it's a continuation, and all is uh, not Israel that is Israel. That's kind of my take on it. Is that, is that how, you, how you're seeing it? Right. Well, the technical term is supersessionism, that uh -huh. Christianity superseded Judaism, you know, as a religion. But this has been a great flaw in amillennial and postmillennial thought over the last 150 years because they think there's some clean break. And so this is a much more powerful way. I think it's a copyrighted term, but it's kind of a transmillennialism. You're taking all of the things that the dispensationalists are concerned about and saying, yes, we should be concerned about all those things. And you're taking some of the things that the post-millennials and all the other non-dispensational churches are worried about, and you're saying, yes, we should be worried about those too. And it, it really synthesizes uh, all, of, all of these views that are flawed uh, together and, and puts it in the context of God's eternal purpose. From Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, God's eternal purpose is to recreate a people for his possession to be the perfect bride for his son, which means they have to be elevated from human life to Zoe life so that they are the same kind as God. Christ can't marry a human any more than we can marry a turkey. We have been newly created with Zoe life, the indwelling life of the Spirit of God within us. 
and 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 it's a continuity. This this is the promise that was given to Israel from Abraham and Jacob. These are the promises given to Old Covenant Israel. We saw that over and over and over again. And we are now the beneficiaries of all this. And so to view this as a continuity is so much more powerful than all of these competing but flawed views of God's plan and and purpose. We are the perfect temple for God to dwell in. And as I tell my local Christian friends, you know, it doesn't say at the end of Revelation, behold, the dwelling place of man is, you know, in heaven with God. That's not how the Bible closes. The Bible closes with, behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man on earth. Mm-hmm. And that that just trips up all of the teaching of all of the Protestant churches and most of the Catholic churches and every other church uh, over the last, you know, 150, 200 years. This is so much more powerful the, the end goal of the Bible or Jesus Christ isn't to save us. That That's an important part. Well, in fact, that's what we're getting to here on the next part here. So let's, uh, let's just jump in here and read verses 5 through 14. That ties right into this thought. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again... When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. For of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And again, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Great. Thank you very much. Now, here's our second list of seven. We had seven characteristics of Christ, and now we have seven quotations from the uh, Septuagint, the Old Testament scriptures in Greek. And five of these, I believe, are from Psalms. The author of Hebrews really, really likes the Psalms and uses them over and over again. And we don't have time to go and read the full context, but again, all of the recipients of this letter would have been thoroughly familiar with these Psalms. And when they heard one line of them, the rest of of the context would have immediately come to mind. And all seven of these are pointing out that Christ is superior to the angels. The first one quoted is the second psalm, and this one was used in the book of Acts to proclaim the reality of the kingship of Christ and the relationship to the throne of David. A lot of these verses in here that talk about ruling and and all that are intertwined in with promises made to David in the psalms, and 
in some other passages here. And this becomes very important because, again, so many people don't think that David's throne has yet been reestablished or that if there is a kingdom, it's not the the long-awaited kingdom, you know, promised or that there's five different kingdoms or some such complexity. The Bible's so much simpler when you just see that eternal purpose threading all through the context and that the kingdom is God's passion. I mean, that's everything that has been done up to this point when the writer of Hebrews is writing has been to bring about this rule of the Son of God in the perfect kingdom, a perfect temple, and also figured again as the perfect bride. Okay, the uh, second one is from Second Samuel. This is a promise made about one of David's heirs. And it says, he shall be my son, the son of God. I mean, th- this would be almost sacrilege. But we see how that it came about through Jesus, who is both the son of God and the son of David, perfectly fulfilling this promise. And, oh, well, I failed to mention earlier that the law of Moses came through angels. That's, I don't think that's actually in the scriptures per se, that, but that is uh, part of the oral tradition handed down through the Pharisees to the rabbis, which might give us a clue that the writer had some connection with the Pharisaic tradition at some point. Here, the third one, let all God's angels worship him. This has a passing resemblance to the 97th Psalm, which in the Septuagint says, worship him, all his angels. But it is even closer as a paraphrase of part of the closing words of the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, which we spent a lot of time with as we went through the book of Acts. In fact, William is the one who introduced me to the Song of Moses back in 2007, I think it was. And I was so mad that I had never heard anybody talk about it in all of my years of sitting in Bible classes and sermons. But the Song of Moses, of course, is the prediction of what would happen to Israel in her last days, as was asked a little bit ago. And let all the angels of God ascribe strength to him, for he avenges the blood of his sons and will avenge it. He will reward punishment to his adversaries, even to those who hate him. He will recompense it, and the Lord will cleanse his people's land. So we will see a great consistency throughout this letter of Hebrews that there is an imminent cleansing coming to the promised land, which again has a spiritual idea, but also has had a physical idea at the time the writer was writing. The next one is from the 104th Psalm, talking about the angel's role in keeping things going here. The fifth one is from the 45th Psalm, and this is a celebration of a royal wedding. And again, I think this is one of the major themes of the Bible from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation is this royal wedding of the Son of God. And I don't think this psalm is mentioned by accident or random chance at all here. Again, the, the, the readers would know the immediate context of this brief quotation. And again, it has yet another connection with the house of David here 
The sixth is from the 102nd Psalm, or actually the 101st in the Septuagint. And it's a rather lengthy one. This talks about the heavens and the earth. And again, we, we are so used to immediately understanding this as the physical universe, the heavens and earth. But yet, we see, if we go back to the Song of Moses at the very beginning, the initial address to Israel in Deuteronomy 31, verse 28, I believe it is, God says, Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I might speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to testify against them. And this is very much a covenantal song demonstrating how Israel has broken their covenant with Yahweh over and over and over again. And God calls heaven and earth to testify against them. So heavens and earth are very much covenantal language with a spiritual meaning, which is very important when you read like Second Peter 3, which everyone assumes is about the physical end of the universe. But I believe it's not speaking that at all. It's speaking of the old covenant relationship about to be swept away like that candle about to be consumed and gone. And the old heavens and earth will perish, but God is remains the same. His love for Israel remains the same, running all the way through all this. But again, if you want to think of this physically, be my guest. I just present this as, as something to consider and study, because this letter is going to be contrasting the old heavens and earth, the old covenant Israel, the old order of things, to the new order of things with the establishment of Messiah's kingdom. And then the uh, seventh quote is from the 110th Psalm. I think we saw this also in the book of Acts. And this one Christ used to set his enemies at naught. (laughs) Again, the mystery, how could a descendant of David be David's Lord It makes perfect sense in Christ, but it was a real mystery and confusion to Israel, to old Israel, the Judean nation at this time. And again, throughout the New Testament, the enemies of Christ are the Judean nation, those who insist on a physical fulfillment of the promises of the prophets. In the book of Acts, we see them become the enemy of God, And again, most people think this is something still in the future, but yet it makes perfect sense with this imminent judgment out of the Song of Moses on Old Covenant Israel. They will be made a footstool for the feet of Christ. And then we close with the idea that angels are ministering spirits sent to do service for those who are to inherit salvation, who have part of that inheritance that is Christ which, again, only the remnant of Israel would receive. Okay, I'm sure I missed some stuff, but any comments on this? Mark, I have a question, something that uh, you mentioned twice in your presentation. As you're quoting the first verse of a psalm or something, you'd say the readers or the listeners would understand in the context and the whole the whole psalm, the whole idea that's on that. 
it doesn't really completely relate to our Hebrew study here, but I was just going to ask you, how does that relate to when Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, quoting Psalm 22, and then because in, in Psalm 22 later on it says, you who fear the Lord, praise him, the offspring of Jacob, glorify him, he says, uh, he'll be the deliverer in all that. I was always taught, you know, this is where God had to turn his back on his son and all the sin was on him and so forth. But if you read the Psalm 22 in its context, it's God is being the deliverer. And so I just wonder if you had any comments on that. Well, that's a a whole other, I wouldn't say can of worms, but a fascinating study that, again, most of the Protestant churches have probably had it wrong in this legalistic uh, view that God the Father did turn his back on the Son. I've seen in the last few years some very powerful presentations of what we call the Eastern understanding of the gospel, in which it is a it is a gospel of healing, not a legal action only. And I'm not a an expert on it yet at all. I'm just being introduced to it. But the presentations I've seen on that are very compelling. And and this is part of that. So I, I think that's a very good catch on your part. Does anyone else have any specific insight onto onto that contrast between the Western legalistic view of the cross versus the Eastern view. All right, well, we'll try to look a little bit more at that as we go through this letter. Anything else here before we close? Wow, I think that was an excellent start to hear in Hebrews, Mark. That was powerful, and thanks so much for everybody's input and thoughtful questions. We'll look forward to continuing on. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.